Well, good morning. It's my privilege to bring the word to you this morning. So I'll be reading from 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thanks so much to Phil for reading for us, and uh, for Tim for leading. Let me add my greeting to Tim's this morning and welcome you to church. Now, I was at college, at the college in Brisbane the other day, and uh, I was talking to a lecturer and another pastor, and as one does, the conversation got on to, what are you preaching about at the moment? Uh, and one of the pastors said, well, you know, we're, we're reading through the book, uh, Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly as a Church, so we're preaching about the heart of Christ. Uh, and they asked me, what am I preaching on? I said, well, we're doing a series on Christian basics. So looking at things like the Bible and prayer, baptism, the Lord's Supper. And they asked, well, what are you doing this Sunday? I said, we're doing sin. And he said, well, that's, that's a basic that we don't need any help with. And he's quite right. Because no matter how long we've been a Christian, sin is the one thing that we never seem to really get the upper hand on. You know, there's patterns of thought and habits of speech and tendencies in our actions that seem to hang around like a bad smell from the life we had before we knew Jesus. And the more we walk with Jesus and discover the depths of his grace towards us in the gospel, the more acutely, actually, we become aware of our own sin. And incredibly, no matter how far we've come with Jesus, we'll still find new sins cropping up, things that come up in our lives that might have been unthinkable many years before, which hamper our walk with Jesus. I mean, just think about how many uh, Christian men seem to get grumpier the older we get. Romans chapter 7, Paul, the great apostle, with painful honesty, gives us a window into the war going on in his soul between what he wants to do for God and what comes naturally. John chapter 8, Jesus invites those who are without sin to grab a stone and execute the woman caught in adultery. And of course, no one can answer the call. Our reading this morning says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So despite what some say or choose to ignore, sin is still a problem for Christians. We are being renewed, so we're a work in progress. We're not finished yet. But thankfully, God promises that one day we will be completed when Jesus comes to take us home. Now, this morning we're going to look at a few verses from John's letter and what he says about the place of sin in the Christian life. It's not a comfortable subject, that's why I'm very glad that Phil was reading for us, an airline pilot knows how to deliver serious news in a way that's easy to understand. But hopefully our conclusions this morning will be very encouraging to us. So I'm going to invite us now to pray with me, 
and ask the God who put these words in the Bible to teach us what they mean and how to obey them. Let's pray. Our God and Father, as we come to your word this morning, help us submit to you and to resist the devil. Let us draw near to you and be aware of you drawing near to us. Please help us to cleanse our hands and purify our minds, being willing to mourn and weep for our sin, humbling ourselves before you so that you ultimately may lift us up in Christ. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to read you something from an old book this morning as we kick off. Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced up on either side with a wall, and that wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. And he ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble, and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell in, and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome, and he said with a merry heart, he has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood, a, stood still a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. Now as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him with peace be to you. So the first said to him, your sins be forgiven you. The second stripped him of his rags and clothed him with a change of clothes. The third also set a mark on his forehead and gave him a, a scroll with a, a seal upon it, which he bid him, bid him look on as he ran and he should give it in at the celestial gate. And so they went on their way. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing, Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in. Till I came hither, what a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss. Must here the burden fall from off my back. Must here the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, Blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, do yourself a copy and read it. Uh, find a copy and read it. Uh, you can also find versions with updated modern language. If you've never heard of uh, the Pilgrim's Progress, it was a book written by a Christian man in the 17th century called John Bunyan. John Bunyan was sent to prison in England for preaching the gospel. And his story is based on a dream that he had in prison about a man called Christian who goes on a journey which mirrors the life we all uh, walk through with Jesus. Christian meets all sorts of characters and challenges along the way which reflects different challenges and difficulties and, and encouragements in the Christian life until he eventually reaches the celestial city, which is, of course, heaven. 
And the story begins with Christian reading a book, which is obviously the Bible, and he feels the crushing weight of a burden on his back. And the burden is, of course, his sin. His sin fills him with fear, it fills him with sorrow, and he knows he needs to get rid of the burden. But he doesn't know where to go or what to do. And eventually, he's helped to find a hill where there stands a cross, and it's only at the cross that the burden of his sin is finally removed forever, just as he looks at the cross. Uh, Read in the story, the the burden is suddenly loosed from his back, and it tumbles down until it goes into the tomb, and it disappears forever. That's because having our sin finally and fully forgiven by the death of Jesus in our place at the cross is the core message of the gospel. It's at the very heart of being a Christian. So what do we do with the sin that we still do? Well, that's what John wants us to understand in this part of his first letter this morning. I do encourage you to have a Bible open at 1 John chapter 1. You'll also find on the order of service, there's an outline which we'll work through together today. It probably helps as we get into things to define what we mean when we talk about sin. What, is, what does the Bible mean when it talks about sin? Our culture tends to misunderstand sin. Uh, We think sin means spoiling fun, or if there is any sin in our culture at all, it's it's the breaking of the moral code of individual self-expression. Sin is a very common word in the Bible. The verses we've had today, those nine verses, John uses it eight times. The first human sin tells us what the Bible is talking about when it uses the word So back in Genesis chapter 3, the first human beings choose to disobey God's clear command not to eat the fruit from the tree that God had pointed out in the middle of the garden. So when they did eat that fruit, in a sense, they committed a double sin. Not only did they disobey God by eating, taking the fruit from the one tree about which God had said no, but they also showed what they thought of all the other blessings and trees God had given them. They despised God's blessings. And this helps make sense of the name of the tree. The name of the tree, of course, Genesis 2.17, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the point of the forbidden tree in the middle of the garden, with this name, therefore, was a constant reminder that the knowledge of good and evil belongs to God alone and not to human beings. In other words, only the Creator has the right to define what's good and what's bad, not the creatures he's made. Our job is to simply accept and obey his rules. So Bruce Milne's definition of sin, I think, is as good as any. At the heart of sin is that which de-gods God. Sin is our rebellious refusal to let God be God. Of course, we see this quite clearly in our society. Of course, we see practices and principles that God forbids in his words, celebrated and even protected by law. But let's be careful here, because an excessive concern with the evil out there can actually blind us to the danger of the evil in here, which is certainly what the Bible is concerned about. Because sin is there in our own hearts as well. It's every time we feel justified in hurting someone else or in serving ourselves at others' expense, or indulging ourselves in something that God has ruled out, or finding our truth and worth elsewhere than in the God who made us. That's sin. 
Every time we put pleasure or comfort or convenience over obedience to the Creator's design plan, that's sin. And we all do it. We've all done it all our lives. We've never needed to be taught how to sin. It's in our DNA and has been ever since Adam took the first bite. Sin is criminal activity in God's kingdom, and therefore it deserves to be met with the full weight of God's law. It must be punished. And friends, remember, it's not the evil in the world which will keep you out of heaven, it's the evil in your own heart. But of course, this is what the cross of Christ is all about. God's own beloved Son receiving the punishment your sin deserved at the hands of a righteous judge so that you may, by faith, receive God's mercy and grace and be transformed from his enemy into his son or daughter. Isn't the gospel wonderful? Well, we need to be clear about what sin is as we come to hear what John's got to say to us today. Let's get into the passage itself. Uh, This is from, look at our first heading, Light and Dark, um, verse 5 to 7. You need to know, as we come to this first letter of John, that John's writing actually a very repetitive letter. It's a repetition of warnings and appeals that are based around three important themes, which are hallmarks of genuine Christianity. The three themes are interconnected, and they are these. Number one, belief in Jesus Christ as God's promised king and rescuer, and as God become man. That's number one. Secondly, and number two and three flow out of the belief in Christ. Number two, belief in Christ expressed in truly Christ-like behavior. So righteousness in obedience towards God. And then thirdly, third hallmark of genuine Christianity is belief in Jesus expressed in truly Christ-like love towards fellow believers. So belief in Jesus Christ Christ-like behavior, Christ-like love. Those are the three hallmarks of genuine Christianity that John wants us to notice in his letter. Apparently, there were people known in this church or connected to this church who made bold claims about having a relationship with God, being close to God, about doing work for God. But their claims were undermined by their attitudes towards other Christians and towards their own godliness, towards sin. These attitudes contradicted their claims to fellowship with God because it made it clear they did not believe in the gospel. Jesus was not their Lord and Savior. So John writes to warn and encourage. And so he begins his letter in verse 1 to 4, affirming the credibility of the gospel as an eyewitness to who Jesus was and what he did. Remember, John was one of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. He spent three years with Jesus, hearing Jesus, seeing Jesus, talking to Jesus. He knows he was there. John was even at the foot of the cross. Then in verse 5, he makes a very simple but very powerful statement. Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. What does it mean that God is light? Of course, it can't mean that God is kind of made up of photons. That's hardly the point. This is a statement about God's holiness or about his moral character. It's a very vivid and visual way that's drawn from the rest of the Bible, which 
tells us that God is holy and righteous and true and pure. And more than that, by saying that God is light, John tells us that all holiness and righteousness and purity and truth come from God. He is the source of all of this. He is the source of all light. The contrast, of course, in him is no darkness at all, tells us that wherever there is evil and wickedness and deceit and unholiness and unrighteousness, these things do not have their origin in God and they are far from being in his presence. So you go into a dark room, you turn on the light, the darkness disappears, it doesn't hang around. Darkness cannot exist where there is light. And so there's a problem if we either consciously or unconsciously claim to have a relationship with God while ignoring, excusing, or even redefining the sin in our lives. Which is why John goes on to say in verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, this is the first of three pairs of if statements in this section. There's six ifs, three pairs. And this is a very serious warning. Because no matter how rationally, pointing to evidence, or how passionately we might claim to be a Christian, to have fellowship with God, to believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, if there is sin in our lives which we're holding on to, tolerating, maybe even enjoying, justifying, excusing, making no effort to deal with, then we are living a lie. Uh, John uses a lovely Greek word here. Uh, the word for lie is pseudometha. We all know what pseudo means. It means something that's fake. To quote a great philosopher of, of our age, fake is going to fake, and you can't just shake it off. But the death and resurrection of Christ is all that can free us from this fakeness. John remembered what Jesus said about light and darkness. He wrote it down in his gospel, John 12, 46. Jesus said, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. John 12, 46. Jesus comes to set us free from sin and to bring us into the light. So look at verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Note the all sin. The gospel is an invitation to come into the light. The light exposes our sin for what it is, as it's held up against God's standard of holiness and righteousness and purity and truth in his word. But as it's exposed, it allows the cleansing power of the gospel to be applied to it. been a lot of talk about revival recently, um, following events at a Methodist college in America, and, you know, it's fantastic if there's a special movement of God's Spirit amongst young people somewhere. Let's praise God for that. But back in the 1930s in East Africa, there was another revival which continues to influence the spread of the gospel in Africa today, and actually around the world as well. You could read about it elsewhere, but this verse, verse 7, was a key verse preached on and remembered during that movement. Many East Africans discovered a spiritual freedom they had not previously known by means of this verse, writes one writer. 
The revival itself was characterized by a moral response to the gospel that went with faith in Jesus, that was noticed actually across the whole society. Even non-Christians saw that there was something different about these people. There was a change. People didn't just accept Jesus into their hearts. They openly confessed sins, even hidden and private sins that surprised their closest friends and neighbors. Theft, adultery, jealousy, witchcraft, domestic violence, alcoholism. And they resolved to live new lives together with the help of God's Holy Spirit. Someone who was there said that for the balokole, which is Lugandan for saved ones, it was incomprehensible that one should profess the name of Jesus without any visible change from a sinful lifestyle. And perhaps the most remarkable thing is that they did this together. There was a new vulnerability and humility towards one another where walking in the light was a shared activity in fighting sin eagerly and receiving correction gladly, doing what is right, seeking wisdom from and praying for one another, following Jesus together. Perhaps there's something to learn here. I think in the West we're very good at keeping our faith in Jesus private, perhaps even private from the God that we're claiming to serve, to the point where it's all about us. Of course, this is nonsense. We must forget that we're always naked and exposed before him, the eyes of him before whom we must give an account. It's Hebrews 4.13. But on the other hand, you know, we live in such a lonely and isolated age that coming into the light might be just what we need to remind us that we follow Christ together. We're part of God's people. We have fellowship with one another in Christ. Perhaps our African brothers and sisters have something valuable to teach us about walking in the light before God and before each other. Well, in verse 8, we move naturally to John's next if statements. These are all centered around truth and lies. Because even in the light of the midday sun, we can still pretend it's night if we close our eyes. So in a similar way, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's one thing for a Christian to be ignorant of their sin. Maybe they haven't yet heard or read in their Bible that the things they used to think were right are actually wrong in God's sight, like lying to stay out of trouble or get ahead or using bad language. But it's an entirely different thing if we consciously deny or redefine or worse still, justify our own sin and claim that what the Bible calls sin is no sin at all. Or we tell godly, gracious brothers and sisters to get lost when they humbly and graciously question our godliness. Or we only admit to the things we're comfortable admitting to. Yes, I use bad language every now and then. Yes, I get angry with my kids. But I'm ignoring the elephant in the room of an arrogant and conceited streak in my heart or a porn habit or, an, or, a, or a habitual alcohol abuse. We're only kidding ourselves, says John. I mean, if we have no sin, well, then we don't need Jesus, do we? Verse 10, if we say we've not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. Who dare to call God a liar? And yet it's easily done. It should also warn us against any kind of Christianity which claims to give power to rise above all sin and evil this side of heaven. God says otherwise. But how scary is it to admit our sin, all of our sin? 
to name each of those things which we've done which rightly invite God's just judgment. It might be the depth of the sin that scares us. It might be the length of the list. So then listen to what God's word says in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, when John says confession, he doesn't mean going to sit in a little room behind a little wooden screen and telling a stranger our secrets. When he says confess, he literally says, use the same words, or in context, to agree with another's words. See, Christian confession means to agree with what the Lord says about our sin in his word. It's not about what we think we've done wrong. It's about what God says in his word that we've done wrong. It's what David says in Psalm 51 when he prays, Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That's Christian confession. However, this humble submission to God's judgment also comes with a promise because of the gospel. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's faithfulness means that he never breaks a promise. God always keeps his word, so you can take this promise to the bank. His justice or his righteousness means that no sin ever goes unpunished, but also that the punishment is always fair. It always fits the crime. He never overpunishes or underpunishes. And yet that's exactly what happens at the cross. Because at the cross, God fulfills his promise from ages past to send a king and rescuer who will crush Satan's head and remove our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. And at the cross, Jesus takes, or he makes the payment for our sins. He receives the punishment. The judgment falls on him until it is paid for. That's faithfulness and justice. And so God's faithfulness and justice comes to us in forgiveness of past sins and cleansing for future holiness. He wipes the slate clean and we start again. If only we will admit our sin in need of Jesus. It's so simple, it's so beautiful. It takes courage and it takes humility though. And it takes a realization of what's truly on offer at the cross. Notice John says all sin. There is no sin too big or too bad for God to forgive. All sin. Of course, Elton John once sang, sorry seems to be the hardest word. We struggle to admit that we're wrong and that someone else is right. We rather get defensive than admit that we're wrong. We justify rather than expect, accept responsibility for our actions. These attitudes are out of step with the gospel. So Bible teacher F.F. Bruce once wrote, those who deny their sin will feel no need of recourse to the cleansing power of Christ. 
Those who, conscious of their sins, confess them, have in Christ a Savior from whom forgiveness and cleansing from every sinful act may be freely received, not because he is indulgent and easygoing, but because he is faithful and righteous. Well, I hope it's been clear so far that it's not perfection from sin which means we're a real Christian. It's our attitude towards our sin which matters. This is our fourth heading, verse 1 and 2 of the next chapter. One preacher said that the issue is not sinlessness, but lawlessness. Even those in Christ will still sin. However, because we now walk in the light, forgiven and cleansed, sin should no longer be the norm for a Christian. Over time, the new you should be getting the upper hand over the old you. So the trajectory is upwards, even though the line may look like a whole bunch of squiggles. Our sin should no longer define us the way it once did. It's not who we are anymore. If sin is the norm, you may still be living in darkness and you need to come into the light. In verse 1 of the next chapter, John summarizes the thrust of what he's been saying with tender and compassionate words, he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John hopes we've seen how dangerous sin is, how deceitful and destructive it is, we'll not want no part of it. He hopes we've seen that sin will keep us out of fellowship with God and out of heaven. It's that serious. So we'll want to run from it, guard against it, So what do we do if we sin? Does that mean we've been living a lie? Well, listen to what John says about the sin that is the exception rather than the rule. End of verse 1. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I think there are two big Bible words here which we probably need to explain to understand what John is saying. The first is the word advocate. It's not one that's usually used in Australia in this sense. We usually use the word barrister. Uh, Barrister is a highly trained lawyer who specializes in court cases. Uh, Incidentally, my father-in-law was a state advocate in South Africa, uh, specialized in state legal cases. But this is who Jesus is. He is one who represents us to God in the heavenly courtroom. He is the one who is qualified to speak on our behalf to the judge. If you're a fan of courtroom dramas, only Jesus has the right to approach the bench and talk to the judge offline about the case. might be wrong here, but whenever I read in the news that someone decided to represent themselves in court, I always kind of think that they haven't understood the gravity of the situation. How much more in God's courtroom? We need an advocate, and Jesus is our guy. The second big word is propitiation. This is a word which has come under fire at times because what it means about us is actually really hard to swallow. Propitiation essentially means a sacrifice which turns away anger. And that's necessary because our sin doesn't just put us at odds with God, Our sin actually makes a holy God 
who made us rightfully angry with us for disobeying. So to put this very simply, when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just pay the price for our sins to balance the books with God. He actually absorbed God's anger at our sins so that God's attitude towards us was fundamentally changed forever. We went from being under God's wrath to being under God's love because Jesus absorbed all the wrath. I forget who it was, but an old preacher once said that Jesus at the cross took the cup of God's wrath in both hands and drank it dry. Just let that sink in for a moment. When Jesus died on the cross, he personally absorbed God's righteous anger at us for our sin and changed God's attitude towards you and me and everyone else in the whole world who trusts in Jesus. And so the God to whom we confess our sins through Christ, our advocate and propitiation, is a God who loves us who loves to have fellowship with us, loves to forgive us, and loves to cleanse us from all sin. And so this verse fits together with verse 9 like two pieces of a puzzle which give us a full picture of the gospel. God's faithfulness and justice or righteousness depends on Jesus, our advocate and propitiation. should give us every encouragement in the world to come to our loving Father with our sin, into the light, trusting the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness and cleansing of all our sin, wanting to see our sin tumble backwards into the tomb that we see it no more. And whenever sin rears its ugly head once more, it'll be our attitude to it that proves or disproves where we stand with God. Will our sin always drive us again and again and again and again to the cross of Christ in humility and brokenness to remember what Christ had done for us? A preacher in, in England in the 19th century said to those discouraged by their sin, and Christians do get discouraged by their sin, he said, but let us look more at Christ dying for us and do not confine our attention as we often do simply to our sins. Let us especially beg of Christ to pour out his spirit upon us that the heart of stone will soon give way to a heart of flesh. In Pilgrim's Progress, there's a few occasions where Christian, having you know, he's, he's seen his sin be taken away forever, but he still struggles on the road to heaven. And each time, what gets him back on track is a remembrance of what happened at the cross. There's an occasion where he loses his scroll, the, the written proof that he belongs in heaven. And what does he have to do? Well, he has to retrace his steps until he finds it again. Go back to the cross, back to Jesus. Let us look more at Christ as dying for us and do not confine our attention as we often do simply to our sins. What John calls us to assess here really is what our relationship with our sins says about the relationship we claim to have with God. 
Because friends, a real Christian must be constantly alert to the possibility of sin in our lives and that we may take it always to Christ's cross to smother it, to starve it, to cut it out or whatever else we need to do to get rid of it. So John Owen, the Puritan's famous words ring true, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. And the way we do this is through what the Bible calls repentance, humble, honest confession of our sins to God and asking for forgiveness through Jesus and then resolving with God's help and all the help he provides to walk in the light and not in the darkness anymore. It's no surprise that Jesus includes forgiveness as a daily theme in his Lord's Prayer. Every time you pray, say, Father, forgive me. Because he knows what our life will be like, but he also knows where we need to go with our sin. I sometimes think that God would rather have us with our backs pressed up against the cross, near to him in constant dependence on him, hemmed in by the all-too-real awareness of sin in our lives like a hedge of sharp thorns, than to walk through life believing we're sinless and have no need of Jesus. In other words, a healthy awareness of our sin leads to a healthy appreciation of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's easy to believe that our greatest efforts and energies as followers of Jesus must be focused on skills like praying and reading the Bible and uh, sharing the gospel. I think, in fact, Jesus and the New Testament writers call us to prioritize dealing with our own personal sin with the gospel. Only this will drive us to the cross of Christ in the right spirit, which is the only place for a Christian to be, and which will actually then in turn generate a hunger for God's word and a deep dependence in prayer and an urgency in evangelism. It starts with an awareness of our own sin and an awareness of what God has given us in the gospel. Being alert to and dealing with our sin, I think, is a lot like checking for moles on our skin. Uh, Living in Queensland, we all know how dangerous and deadly skin cancer is. Uh, A number of you have had things cut out at various points. But it's the mole that gets ignored that most often turns into something that can kill us. The earlier we spot it, the easier and less painful it is to remove it. And often we need the help of a trained eye, or we need the help of someone to check the areas we can't see that well to assess the situation. Only our sin doesn't need a scalpel, it needs a cross. And so John here in this first letter, his his nine verses, he shows us what are really two ways to live. Both ways claim to have fellowship with God, but one is a fake. One way claims to have fellowship with God, yet walks in darkness and denies or ignores personal sin looks incredibly religious on the outside. But the result is that whatever is passionately claimed, they do not practice the truth. The truth is not in them. They make God a liar and his word is not in them. The second way also claims fellowship with God. But it walks in the light, freely confesses sin, and trusts itself to Jesus as their advocate and the one who changed God's attitude towards them. As a result, they enjoy fellowship with other believers, true fellowship with God, and forgiveness and cleansing from sin and all unrighteousness through the blood of Jesus. Which way are you living? It's a life or death question. How about we pray?
thought it'd be appropriate that we actually take some time to silently reflect on these words this morning. So I'll give you a moment to do that. I'll lead us in a prayer from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you'll not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You'll not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and the whole burnt offerings, and then bulls will be offered on your altar. Father, we pray this all in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, our Advocate, our Propitiation, our Friend. Amen. We're going to close our service by... Um, thanks everyone for staying back for this Q&A, so apologies uh, that you've got to listen to my dulcet tones while uh, Toby's at a music meeting today, so I'm filling in. Um, my name's Rob, if anyone doesn't know me, and um, please just let me start with prayer and then we'll get underway, if that's okay. Father, we thank you for uh, the chance to be here this morning as a family under you and to hear from your word this morning um, and to meet afterwards here, Father, and to 
just explore further about uh, this, uh, our understanding of sin um, and what it means to you, Lord, and uh, how we can live as uh, Christians under you uh, in light of that. And we, Lord, we pray uh, this morning that it would be just a time of, of great learning um, and exploring your nature, uh, Father, as we um, yeah, listen to your Holy Spirit. Amen. Alrighty, so um, we, I think we just jump straight into any questions. Has anyone got any burning questions right now? We don't have anything on the slides, so um, feel free to stick a hand up and we'll, um, I'll run over to you. Always look, ooh. See, if it was an auction, if it was an auction, I would have said 2,000, he's gone 2,000. All right, so I haven't fully articulated this. This is just a thought that popped into my mind. But um, for Christians who have one particular sin that they battle with that is maybe persistent, regardless of whether it was in their old life before knowing Christ or whatever, how do you think that, you know, sometimes that can cause tunnel vision and, you know, make them, like, kind of blinded to other areas of sin in their life or even just um, the good areas of, of God working in their life as well. This is a very good question, and I think he wants me to start so he can think of a better answer than what I'll give you. I think it's a really good question, and I think it's so true that sometimes, yeah, sure, we, we, can, we can have patterns of sin that, you're right, give us tunnel vision, that that's the only thing that seems to define us as Christians, but maybe that's the thing is that we need to remember that if we're in Christ, that sin doesn't define us anymore. Jesus does. And I think that's, that's the danger with those sorts of things, is that they can just, you know, it ends up, we end up looking at our sin and giving our attention to our sin instead of to Jesus. And, you know, I, I wonder if sometimes God doesn't completely free us from sins to keep us near to Him. So the, the passage that that makes me think of is um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, where Paul has this thorn in the flesh from Satan, messenger to harass him and keep him from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, contend with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm strong." doesn't mean that we tolerate the sin. It doesn't mean that we give up on the sin. Our attitude to the sin will still tell us where our relationship with God is about. But if it's like that, you know, the opposite pole of a magnet in our lives, which keeps throwing us back to the cross, well, that's, that's maybe the best we can hope for in this life. So I'd, I'd say that. But if we're in Christ, it's forgiven. I think that's the, that's the good news. Um, yeah. Des, do you want to? You know, the, the ever-beginning sin, the sin that you troubles you all the time, that you seem to be doing it, and you've been doing it all your life, and you seem to not be able to have a victory over that. And I can, I can identify with you that that kind of sin sometimes blinds us to everything else that we do. The other morning, I woke up three days, three nights, three mornings ago, and I began to confess, and God, I have nothing to confess. And and then the Holy Spirit put the, the, the spotlights on. Bang! It all went through. And, and, I, and the, the, my attitude that I had nothing to confess is that because I hadn't done this sin that so uh, 
troubles me. Above all else, that sin troubles me. And because I wasn't, hadn't committed that sin recently, I thought I had nothing to, to seek forgiveness for until the Holy Spirit. And then I confess every commandment because I'd broken everything. Um, and, and sometimes, yeah, I agree with you, uh, uh, that ever besetting sin or whatever the, you know, the, the Puritans used to call it, um, can uh, blind us to all the other sins that we can commit. Thanks, chaps. Uh, any other questions? Jim, thanks. <laughs> we, we, we have got a very good friend that we've been praying, sorry, we've been a very good friend who uh, is not a Christian. His wife is, uh, and uh, she said, but he will get to heaven because he's a really good man. I, I said, yes, but he's a sinner like me. I, he says, but I haven't done anything really wrong. And he's very difficult to get through. And he knows the Bible very well. He doesn't understand the seriousness of sin or that beautiful Psalm 51. Thanks, Jim. You got comments on that one? Comments on the comment? All okay. Thanks for that input, Jim. Anybody else? Oh, there's Georgie was brushing the hair back. Um. My question is, um, what does it mean when the Bible says that, where is it? Um, I've just lost it. Um, what is it? How Eve, oh, Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. What does that actually mean? Um, 1 Timothy 2.14, I think. <laughs> um, so, okay, the question was, what does it mean when the Bible says that um, Adam was not deceived? Oh, where is it? Okay. Um, Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. You having a look, Des? You're not really... Before we go, um, remember that the the serpent attacked Eve. Um, God had given the, the the commandment to Adam. Okay, and so Adam was the the head, if you like, and um, the this, the serpent deceived Eve. She hadn't received the. Uh, this is our understanding. She hadn't received the direct command from God. She had received the commandment via her husband, Adam. And I think that um, that is why it says it was Eve that was deceived and then Eve deceived Adam. Adam is then considered as the one who, who fell. He is ahead of the... Um, the human race, if you like, and so the sin is the sin of Adam, not the sin of Eve. 
Yeah, I, I definitely tend to agree with Des. I'm thinking that Paul doesn't think that Eve was a transgressor and not Adam. Because I'm just thinking in Romans 6, Paul's very clear that um, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. So clearly both sinners. I think that's something we must be careful of saying, that women are worse sinners than men. Definitely not saying that. But I think yeah, what Des is saying about headship and that order is kind of what Paul's getting at there. Um, it's a tricky passage. Um, without a bit more reading, I probably can't give you a better answer than that. <laughs> I thought it was both were at fault because weeds grew up and we had to have a job keeping the weeds down and Eve had a terrible time in labor and I know that very well. Yeah, quite. So they're both punished equally as sinners under God. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Mark, and then we'll go to some online questions. Yeah, I just want to put in my two bobs worth. The sin was not being deceived, it was eating the apple. Adam made a conscious decision to eat the apple. Um, he knew what he was doing and, and therefore um, he sinned for all of us. Alrighty, uh, if we go to the first online question there. So if, if a person is accused of sin, must the details of the fault be made known of the accusation before any discipline is enforced? Um, obviously, the, there has to be, um, if somebody accuses something of, of someone, you can't say, well, that person is guilty of, well, I can't tell you what it is, but it, that person is guilty of, oh, terribly guilty of, oh, what a terrible. You, you have to say what they're guilty of. You have to state what they're guilty of. That is, is that the, what, what the question is asking? Must the details of the fault be made known of the accusation before any discipline? Obviously, you can't discipline a person if you don't know um, what the details of the accusation are. Any legal people here? Yeah, I'm presuming the question's in the lines of church discipline. So Matthew 18 comes to mind. Um, the principles of, you know, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Um, I'm presuming it, it's, it's kind of in the realm of that sort of discipline. Um, but I think the, certainly the, the, the principles at work here in the thing aren't to rush straight to full-on church discipline, excommunication, you know, those sorts of things. There's a principle at work here where the circle is kept small, the details of the fault are kept, uh, kept small as well until such time as it's necessary that that has to happen. Church discipline is a tricky area. Um, this is one passage which teaches us how to approach that. Um, but I'd certainly say that they need to be, 
if it's discipline that's that's in view, then the details of the fault should be made known to the person so that they can first have an opportunity to re respond and, and repent and, and address that. Uh, that certainly seems to be the uh, the tenor of what's going on here in Matthew 18. I hope that's helpful, whoever asked that question. Thank you. The, um, I guess anything further, the next question down, uh, talking about being accused of a sin anonymously and action taken without fair trial or two to three witnesses. And there's a Deuteronomy reference there. Um, is there anything further you want to comment on in light of that question as well? Sort of in the same theme? Just going to look that up if that's okay. Yeah, so Deuteronomy 19 just flicked it up. It's about witnesses to wrongdoing. Um, a single witness shall not suffice against a person of any crime or any wrong in connection with any offence that has been committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall the charge be established. Um, and if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord. And there's a, a bunch of um, things that happened in the tabernacle with the priests at that point. Um, I don't think it's healthy at all to accuse someone of a sin anonymously. Um, I think that's, that's really out of step with the gospel. I think it's out of step with the way God approaches us. Um, it's certainly not what Jesus is recommending in Matthew 18. Yep. All righty. We'll just uh, do a, uh, a couple more online, then we'll come back to the audience questions. So what are your thoughts on accountability groups to help believers reduce their sin? Yeah. Yeah, I think we should um, put ourselves accountable to to the body of Christ, to the church, in all things. And um, and some people have someone that they go to when they're struggling with sin, you know, for help and encouragement and praying together, and. The focus must always be on the gospel. The focus must always be on, on the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, you know, when any, anybody came to me with things, I said, well, go home, take two good doses of gospel, and come and see me in the morning. You know, because that's what they need. They need a good focus on the gospel, a good focus on what Jesus Christ has done for them. Yeah, I think that's, Des is quite right. I think sometimes accountability groups, especially for particular issues, I know young guys sometimes put, to, put together an accountability group because they're struggling with pornography or something like that. It is easy for those things to become, I guess, facilitation groups or enabling groups if we just always focus on the sin or if we always say, it's okay, brother, we all deal with those things. You know, we all have, have those things ourselves. Uh, it kind of normalizes it. As long as the group is saying, right, we're here to pursue Christ and to put to death our sin in Christ, then that's a good thing. But if it's accountability group where we just kind of actually end up normalizing sin, well, that's, that's unhelpful. So a bit of wisdom maybe there with, with regard to that. You know, if we all got up now and confessed our ever-besetting sin, 
there will be no one in church next Sunday because you won't want to be with any of these people who ever have these thoughts or these um, uh, things in their lives, you know. We all have problems. We need to realize that we, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. And we all need God's forgiveness. We all need to Jesus Christ and his gospel. Okay, if we come back, does anyone in the audience have a question if you want to raise your hand? Otherwise, we'll keep with the Slido questions. No? <laughs> a little flinch. All righty. Um, thank you, gents, for that so far. It's really great. Um, so should sin be confessed to people that they affect as well as to God? don't know if that's a biblical principle that says that's always true. It should always be confessed to God because he always knows and sees. Um, I think somehow it, should, it could be actually quite unhelpful to confess a sin that, to someone that they affect. You know, um, I don't know how it would go down if I came up to Bruce and I said, Dear Bruce, my brother, you know, I confess that you know, I've, I've uh, had some really, really bad thoughts. I've wanted to wring your neck the last few weeks. Um, I don't know how helpful that is necessary. That's probably something between me and God. Um, I know there might be situations where it's not, not quite true. Not that I do want to do that, just by the way, just clarify. <laughs> but yeah, some, uh, maybe not always. It's a wisdom issue, perhaps. Um, yeah. I don't think we should make a black and white um, rule on this one. Somebody once came to me and um, told me, you know, I, I need to confess to you something. And they confessed it. And I had no problems with this person. I was really... But after they confessed and what they were thinking of me, I think, boy, I think our relationship went <laughs> downwards. And I had no concept of, of their, their uh, evil thoughts concerning me or their hatred or whatever. Uh, but after that, it, it, it ruined the relationship. Alrighty. Uh, the next question is, did God create sin? Great question. <laughs> no one's reaching for the microphone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can read from the confession. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah we could read it from the confession. Um, I'll go back to this morning's passage. Uh, and God is light and him, him is no darkness at all. Sin, sin is not the opposite of goodness, I guess, in that way. Sin's the absence of goodness in the same way that darkness is the absence of light. So it's not something that God actually creates. It's something that exists where God's goodness is rejected. Um, I guess that's how I'd answer that question. So God didn't cause Adam and Eve to sin or any of that kind of stuff. He, he knew it was going to happen. Um, he created the world with that built in, but he didn't make sin. The sin's kind of a, sin's the vacuum where God's kind of pushed out. Um, that makes sense. Yes, God created the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, yes, but He didn't create sin. That's yeah. <clears throat> Des, you want to leave the confession to answer that question? <laughs> All right. Anything else in the audience before we um, go to the last online question? Then uh, we. Probably all close to time, but has anyone got any other burning questions? Alrighty, so the last one then uh, on the screen, we can come back to the audience again, but how do I deal with sinful thoughts that plague 
or trouble me, but I didn't commit. The sins of the mind are the most difficult to deal with, you know, because, um, you know, to commit actual murder, I have to go out and kill somebody. To commit adultery, I have to go out and commit adultery. To, to, to steal, I have to go out and take something from somebody else. But the sin of the mind, the thoughts, can be with you all the time, you know. Sometimes they plague you. You, you can't get away from them. Um, and um, in Philippians, can you put up that Philippians when, you know, where... Uh, Paul speaks about talk, thinking about good things. Everything is wonderful. Everything is good. Everything is praiseworthy. Everything is, I can't remember the words exactly, but um, uh, maybe chapter 4 or something again in, in Philippians. And the only way is to think about good thoughts because if you think about the bad thought, I shouldn't have that bad thought. It, it, the, the thought is there, isn't it? The moment you think about the bad things that you don't want to think of, you're thinking about the bad things. But uh, you need to replace the bad thoughts with good thoughts. And sometimes that's very difficult. Yeah, I'll just read the passage Des is referring to. I think he's right. Um, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I think that's, that's the answer, really, is replace the thoughts. Um, you know, sins, sins of the mind, like Des said, are really, really difficult because they just come unbidden, but we need to drive them out with, with better thoughts. Um, yeah, if we focus on them, we're going to think about them. If we focus on better things, then... Um, cool, if I hand the mic over to Rob. All right, a couple of last ones. Thanks, Chris. <coughs> we're not talking much about Satan, are we? But... I think that Satan often puts thoughts into our minds. And I'm thinking of people who are thinking suicidal thoughts. And for them, it is so hard for them to suddenly start thinking, oh, what a lovely day, and aren't those flowers a pretty color? Because Satan's got, the, uh, he's got a hand in it. And we forget that. And depression is another one. Depression is like a dark cloud that fills your mind. And no matter what you think you ought to do, you seem to be powerless. And so I think as Christian church, we should remind ourselves sometimes and learn more how to resist the devil, and then he will flee. Yeah, I think Christine's absolutely right. Um, just, just to clarify for everyone, we're not saying that, sinful, uh, that suicidal thoughts or depression are sinful in and of themselves. I think we've got to be careful of saying that, but certainly that all these things we need to be bringing to Christ and finding our victory and our overcoming in Him and what He can do rather than in ourselves. Yeah. Mm. yeah first, first I was just going to um, also mention that we're not the only ones that struggle with this. Paul himself struggled with um, these thoughts and everything. I mean, he, I can't remember where it is. You might be able to um, mention is it in Romans or something. But yeah. Um, you know, the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. And the things that I want to do, I end up not doing. Um, who will free me from this body of death? So, I mean, it's something that we all have to um, persevere in. Um, I just, just mentioning of Satan, I just wanted to ask, how do we as Christians um, 
manage the spiritual warfare that's on our children at the moment with the gender identity um, very obvious attack. I work with it every day as a psychologist with children. I'm finding it hard every single day. A new client of mine has had Satan whispering in their ear about it and just how do we counter that and um, yeah, I guess that's my question. Thanks for that. Emma? Um, the simplest, strongest medicine is usually the best, so prayer, absolutely. God can do things in people's hearts and lives that we can never even imagine doing. Um, the second is to be mindful of the gospel. Uh, you know, a, a biblical gender framework is not going to do what the gospel can do in someone's life. So we've all got to make sure we've got, got, got the order right. I think that's very important. And I guess, in, I mean, in your workplace, you probably have very, it, it's limited in what you perhaps can do and can't do. Um, yeah. I know, Matthew, yeah, it's just for those on the, yeah, for the people who are listening to this, the Matthew 18, 6, which warns against people who cause children to sin, absolutely. Um, it's, it's a tragic situation, but I guess we've got to, as best as we can be, be models of men and women who trust in the gospel, even despite what we can and can't say necessarily, they must see in us something that, that's desirable, that it actually answers their questions because we know Jesus. Yeah, that's, that's a tough one, though, and... Uh, Absolutely, yeah. And it's got to start there. God can do amazing things. So, yeah. Um. Thanks. Just pass over to Rob. Cheers, Rob. Thanks, Rob. Um, going on what Christine said with regards to that last question that's up there, how do I deal with sinful thoughts? I'm not sure who, who wrote this one up here, that plague trouble me, but I don't commit. There, I think there needs to be clarity to what's a sinful thought and what's a temptation because Jesus was tempted. It says in Matthew 4, he was tempted and said, he was brought up to the top of a mountain and he was by Satan and Satan said, I will give you all that he showed in the kingdoms and it says, and the glory of all the kingdoms. That itself, Jesus was tempted, but it wasn't sin. But what he did is he took the most offensive tool, which is the word of God, and dealt with Satan that way. So... As we know, if, if that Christ isn't sinful, there's a good example. He was tempted, but he used uh, used it. I think a sinful thought would be, put me on top of the mountain and Satan said it. I go, oh, yeah, that doesn't look too bad. That doesn't look too bad. Then as I listen to that temptation, it becomes sin. So there needs to be a clarification on that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah thanks. Good point, Rob. You guys want to comment on that? All good. Any final uh, question? Otherwise, we'll um, pull up stumps there, if that's okay. Is everyone... Yes. One last taker. Thanks. Thank you. Um, I just had a question. Like, in Emma's case, obviously, that's really hard for her to know what to say in that situation. But I'm just a bit confused. Like, how do we know, like... Like, I'm at school and it's just hard to know what to say when people talk about their, like, gender and all that stuff. Um, at what point, like, should you, like, obey the government and what they're advising to God's truth and what you really 
know that you should say, like, even if you can get in trouble. Because I know that in the Bible, a lot of the time, like, um, like a lot of the apostles said stuff that was, like, against what, um, the, like, the Romans and stuff wanted them to say. But, um, and they, they were in jail for that. But I feel like it's easy to go, no, like, we need to do what the government says. But I think that it's important to say the truth in spite of that. And in Emma's case, it would be so hard, like, Where's the line with that? And, um, yeah, what's your thoughts on that? Thank you. Yeah, great question. Pass over for a response there. Cheers. Um, I'll, I'll hand over to Des now. I think he might also have some helpful stuff. It's a tough one. I think just like in Emma's case, it's a really, really tough one. Um, I think what we've always got to remember that telling, you know, in the case of maybe a friend who's gender diverse or something like that or has a different sexual orientation, that's a big thing for them. Telling them that's wrong, you should be this, is not necessarily going to win them for Christ. Um, belief comes before behavior. And so I think there's a really valuable um, maybe contribution you could make in that situation where you could love a person and not be shocked by, you know, sometimes it is attention seeking, sometimes it is that sort of thing. Love them and don't be shocked by it. Treat them as a person. I think the thing about using pronouns and that sort of thing, uh, that's a tricky one. And I think in different cases, you might want to, you know, let that one go through the keeper and, or whatever. But you call them by their name or... But uh, how are you loving them? Because at the end of the day, what's going to change them is not, you know, even, even though the construct is biblical, they're going to see something different in you. Of, you, you think about the world differently. You've got different hopes, different sense of self. Um, and you love them, actually. And that's going to blow their mind. Um, yeah, I say, you know, I, th I think it's in John, one John. There's no law against love, so that's always a safe bet. Um, love them, be hospitable, welcome them, and pray for them. Pray that something might change. Yeah. Mm. Potentially, yeah. No, I, so, for the benefit of those listening, I think Emma's point was that there's it's, it's the beginning of a slippery slope if we start affirming those things. So, not saying affirm those things. I think two things you've got to keep in mind. One is that, especially in your clinical setting, it's a very different kind of environment where you're dealing with the pointy end of these things. Um, in the school setting, you've got different opportunities and different dynamics at play. Uh, the second is God can do incredible things. Um, and I think that's the narrative we don't actually hear often enough is when people have gone way down the slope and actually God has still met them there and changed them. And that, that can happen. We've got to trust God, God will do that. Yeah, sure. Exactly. Yeah, we don't hear enough about those guys who've detransitioned. And yeah, so there is something going on there. But yeah, the prayer, love, gospel, those are the things. They're simple things, but they're things that we can do. And trust God with the with the outcome. Yeah, it is a tricky one. It's an area that's kind of we're still learning how to navigate. I think as Christians as well. Um, there's a very very good organisation you can get in touch with called Living Faith, based down in Sydney, which are, which they do a lot of webinars and writing and stuff in this space, which um, you might find it useful to get onto if you're interested in checking that out a bit more. The Bible says, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds. And I think that we just, wherever we are, 
We just have to let our lives shine before everyone. And even, I know that in, in some employment situations you are in a difficult situation, you know, but we continue to let our light shine. And in time, people would come to talk, to speak to us about certain things. They can see a difference between one person and another. And then the questions start asking, why are you so different to the, to the rest? And then you have a, a wide open door of opportunity to, to point them to Christ. Alrighty, thanks everyone. We'll um, close up there if that's okay, if there's no more questions. But yeah, feel free to hang around and have a chat. Or um, again, a bit of a plug for home groups um, that uh, our community groups meet during the week. And this is a great opportunity to uh, dig in and explore and discuss even more. And I know youth group in particular is working through the, uh, the question of identity uh, this term as well, which is really encouraging to see those guys um, chatting through some of those issues as well. So um, yeah, just encourage you if you're not in a home group to... Uh, come and see one of us and uh, have a chat about that. But um, for now, we'll um, close in prayer. If I might ask Des to pray, if that's okay. Thank you. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we've had this time together. We all struggle with sin. We all struggle with, with our fallen nature. And so, Lord, we, we're just sharing our, uh, uh, our experiences and the things that we struggle with. But we thank you, Father, that Jesus Christ took upon himself every single sin. And he paid the punishment for that sin. We heard this morning about Jesus turning away, absorbing the, the wrath of God so that we receive the love of God. We pray, Father, that we may always focus our attention upon the cross, on the life, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's interceding for us, that this battle we're not fighting on our own, but he who is seated at the right hand of God prays for us. And so, Lord, we, we pray that you would give us victory over those sins that we struggle day in and day out. But we pray that we always remember that in Jesus Christ, you're totally and wonderfully forgiven. And we give you praise and thanks through him. Amen.